Welcome to the Good Fiction Podcast. Join us as we continue with Darkest Darker Dark, Episode 5. The needle pushed through the skin, the nylon string trailing behind like a needle and thread sewing on a button. This was no button, though. This was Debbie's thumb, the left thumb to be exact. Nothing like trying to cut an apple when you're toasted. The needle poked out of the other side of the cut and the doctor pulled tightly, then repeated. She repeated eight times. The cut was long and deep, but so clean from the extremely sharp kitchen knife that a noticeable scar was doubtful. Debbie had no problem watching the little surgical procedure. She probably wouldn't have felt it even without the shot they'd given in her hand. Everyone knew it, too. It was obvious she was high. The young female doctor looked at her suspiciously, but chose not to say much. The local anesthesia wouldn't interact with anything that her young, dazed patient was on. Here she was, getting stitches two hours before her parents' funeral. Surprising she hadn't resisted when Mr. and Mrs. Calhoun saw the seriousness of the cut and insisted she get some help. Her white tank top was splattered with blood that had dried and turned dark maroon. There was dried blood on her exposed belly in both hands. There were even spots in her hair that were matted and clumped together by dried blood. She was expressionless and dazed. Getting her cleaned up and ready was rapidly becoming a priority. Nathan rode with Debbie in the back seat as his parents returned them home. Miss Calhoun immediately began to coax Debbie ever so gently into getting ready, and she complied. Nathan did the same. They didn't talk. What was there to say? A limo arrived in front of the Calhoun house exactly 30 minutes before the funeral was to start. It was decided that she and Nathan would ride in the long black stretch limo and Nathan's parents would follow in their car. They were accomplishing their goal of giving her some space, yet keeping a close eye on her. Black leather seats that were interrupted in their irregular shape followed the contour of the stretch limo. Debbie's black dress, which fell slightly above her bare knees, matched the seat's color. She seemed to melt into the seat from Nathan's vantage point directly across from her. She held a single red rose that had been provided by the funeral company. Her baby fine hair was down and fell around her shoulders. Nathan's tan slacks and white button-down seemed to burst with color in comparison to their surroundings. He felt that paranoid drug feeling of how others were perceiving him. That kind of feeling that makes you want to puke. That kind of paranoia. What was he doing there, he thought. A Mather's novel couldn't have been written better. Not even he could think of this situation, thought Nathan, his paranoia increasingly becoming unbearable. 
He began to fidget with the power windows, trying to find some way to get some fresh air. Little beads of sweat were breaking out on his forehead to combine with the goosebumps. Finally, they made it to the funeral home. Feeling guilty about the fact that he actually wanted to get there only added to his paranoia. The driver wearing a black chauffeur's uniform complete with hat opened the door for them after pulling into a covered area where guests of the family would eventually line up for the trip to the cemetery. Mr. Williamson met them there at the two large glass doors in front of the mortuary. He was dressed in the same, only different colored pinstripe suit. This is so hard, I know, Debbie. He put his hand on her shoulder. It was cold. His face was pale, his lips were red, and the inside of his large nose looked abnormally black. I'm going to help you through this today, okay? Debbie nodded. There are already a lot of people here, said Williamson, as he led us down a marble hallway with paintings of clouds and mountains encased with elaborate wooden frames on each side of the hallway's matching marble walls. Y'all will be sitting in the section just for family, Debbie. No one in the chapel will be able to see you. He put his hand back on Debbie's shoulder. I understand you're the only surviving relative, he asked. She nodded again. Well, Nathan can go with you if you like. You remembered my name, Nathan said dryly. Of course, said Williamson. Now this way, please. They were led into a room that contained three wooden church pews. In front of them was a dark black curtain that enabled them to see out, but no one to see in. As soon as they sat down, the sight was so much to digest that they both felt confused and disoriented. Chapel was large and probably held around 200 people. It was at least half full. Tall stained glass windows that led to nowhere were evenly spaced along the sides. Purples, blues, yellows, and reds sparkled as the overhead lights shined directly into each pane of colorful glass. The ceiling was high and gradually came to a point in its very center. At the front of the chapel was a stage. It was complete with a pipe organ on the side that had pipes stretching in silver to the ceiling top. On the other side was a baby grand piano. In the center of the stage was a lectern in that same sort of cherry wood that seemed to be everywhere in that place. The stage stretched entirely across the front of the chapel and was carpeted in plush maroon-colored carpeting. A floor-to-ceiling crucifix with a life-size Jesus oversaw the comings and goings down the center aisle. His hands, feet, and side showing the visible wounds that led to his death, yet his eyes remained wide open. In front of the stage were two identical caskets, both covered in blankets of fresh red roses and surrounded by literally dozens of flower arrangements each. The smell of the flowers mingled with the dress-up perfume and cologne 
making the air too sweetly rich. There were mumbling voices just under audible whispers. Why wasn't there a viewing? Debbie could hear someone ask in their best hushed tone. The answer was harsh, dry, but full of truth. Well, there couldn't be. You know, why? The voice kept pressing. Unrecognizable came the cold response. They were in the water a long time. Nathan loudly cleared his throat, hoping that would make Moron 1 and Moron 2 realize their conversation was being overheard. It worked. Debbie was holding up okay. She scanned the crowd. There were faces she knew but couldn't put names to. She spotted some girls she knew from school. She started Mr. Marshall, too. He was sitting on the front row next to Nathan's parents. She liked that they knew each other and were chatting. Behind them was the counselor and the assistant principal. There were so many people. All were seemingly concerned and doing what they thought was right. Poor mom and dad, thought Debbie, as she sank deeply into reality. They had no brothers or sisters. Both sets of parents were gone, too. It suddenly dawned on her that she was all they had, really. She thought about her dad and his constant concern for her to what seemed to be the point of cruelty. She'd give anything to have that back now. Like being buried in spurts of hot lava, she felt her insides burn. The guilt was twisting her gut and kicking her all over. The pain of memory was unbearable. A hefty black woman in a blue velvet floor-length dress sang with emotion as all looked on. All except for Debbie. She was crying hard filled with the guilt and sadness beyond belief. Over it all, a smattering of sniffles were heard, tissues dabbed at moistened eyes and runny noses. A man Debbie had never met stepped up to the lectern. Short and pudgy, he wore a solid black suit with the jacket buttoned to cover his otherwise protruding belly, his second chin came dangerously close to his starch white collar and fluorescent yellow tie. He held a worn black Bible close to his chest with one hand. His gray hair was ever so neatly parted to one side. Easily 50-ish, he had a look on his face of compassion and care, a look he seemed to have practiced for years. What could that man possibly say that could help her? She wanted to climb inside one of the boxes and just go to sleep. She wanted to die. Nathan held her tightly and fought back tears of his own, but that only proved to be successful for a short period of time. They fed off each other's despair, clutching tightly, 
they wept. Nothing could hurt worse or have been harder than this experience. But together, they were enduring it. The ceremony was brief, thank God. When it concluded, Williamson reappeared and led Nathan and Debbie to a small room to wait for the procession to the cemetery to be organized. Nathan's parents joined them in the overly plush room that consisted of two couches, a coffee table, end tables with lamps on them, and more paintings of clouds and mountains on the paneled walls. Mrs. Calhoun immediately took over the duties of comforting Debbie, and Mr. Calhoun motioned for Nathan to step outside. When they did, "'Son, I'm proud of you,' he said. "'What do you mean?' asked Nathan. "'You really handled things well today. "'Your mom and I are very proud of you. "'Debbie needed someone today, "'and you've shown a lot of care and compassion.' Nathan nodded. The conversation seemed a little strange, though, like there was more to it. He stood waiting in anticipation for whatever was going to come next. In a different place and time, Nathan would have been quick with the, okay, so what's your real point comment, but this wasn't the spot for that. Nathan started Mr. Calhoun. Things might get a little rough now. Rougher than they have been, he asked. I'm afraid so. The whole act of going to the cemetery is liable to shake her up even more. There's another problem, too. What? asked Nathan in a tell-me-now sort of tone. There are news reports coming out today, said Mr. Calhoun, that it might have been a bomb on the plane. Nathan opened his eyes wider with surprise. The accusation had been hinted at, but up to that point, it was too early to tell. Experts had guessed on TV news and radio talk shows, but no one actually connected with the investigation had publicly commented. Until now, that is. I don't understand, Dad, said Nathan. How is that going to make things worse? The media he responded. They're going to be looking for Debbie to get her reaction. What should we do? asked Nathan. Should we tell her? Mr. Calhoun shifted weight on his feet, put his hands in his front pockets, and sighed. I think we should. She has the right to know what's going on. I thought about waiting to tell her about all of this. Maybe just keeping her away from the news for a day or two. I don't know. That's probably not the right thing to do. What I do want to do, though, is keep the media away from her. Again, Nathan nodded in agreement. Okay, Dad, I'll tell her. And he started to go back into the room where Debbie was sitting with his mother. Mr. Calhoun put his hand on Nathan's shoulder. Your mom's doing that now, Nathan. He could sense Nathan's displeasure with the fact that he hadn't been called on for the task. What was done was done. Nathan figured there must have been some sort of reason for the decision and simply let it go. 
Williamson was approaching anyway with the news that they all dreaded. They were off to the cemetery. Things were going to get even more depressing, he thought to himself. Nathan's parents rode in the limo at Debbie's insistence to the cemetery. It was an unusually warm day for late January. No jackets or sweaters even. Gray, overcast skies predicted that the unseasonable warmth wouldn't be lasting very long and winter's grip would soon return. The cemetery rolled with gentle inclines and slight declines. Crosses of granite and white marble were mixed with statues of the Virgin Mary and praying hands. Immaculate manicured green was everywhere. A beautiful pond with a large mausoleum was next to it and directly across from where the limo and the line of cars came to a stop. The smell of fresh dirt hit Debbie as she stepped out of the limo. She glanced back at the line of cars that followed the limo. Not many people had chosen to attend the graveside service. She looked back toward the limo, and it was then she noticed two black hearses parked directly in front of where the limo had stopped. She glanced to her ride, and there sat her mother and father's caskets next to where they would be in the ground forever. A group of people had begun to gather at the graveside. Mr. Marshall was turned, looking directly at Debbie, and caught her eye. She smiled. Nathan took over from his dad and helped Debbie to the graveside where several folding chairs sat waiting. She felt as if she was floating. It was like her feet weren't even touching the ground. The dress was feeling heavy. People seemed unreal. She wanted to cry but couldn't. There wasn't anything left. Her stomach muscles ached from sobbing. Everything seemed off. Minor attributes became major characteristics. The woman's big nose seemed to cover her entire face. A man's double chin seemed to cover his chest. Someone's bushy eyebrows seemed to sit above her eyes like rats. Nothing seemed real. Nathan didn't look off to her, though. His red hair contrasted with the gray sky. His fair skin matched the pale horizon. She leaned into him, and his strong arm felt good around her as misty drizzle began to fall. He pulled her tighter. She let him. And there they stood. For at least an hour after the hearses had left and the people said how sorry they were, they still stood there. Mr. and Mrs. Calhoun waited patiently. The drizzle had turned to light rain. The temperature was rapidly falling. She didn't feel it. All she could feel was hurt and the strong arm around her shoulder. Thank you for listening. 
Join us next time as we continue with Darkest Darker Dark. I'm Rodney Mathers. Goodbye for now.